is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light program. Coming up later is another of our exciting slumbertime stories. But now it's time for another in our series of musings of the moment. This week, we are delirious with anticipation as it's our first joint musing with the much lauded and fearless explorers, Lord Hercules and Lady Boudicca of Cheam, presenting their views. This bold husband and wife team were the first to climb Mount Hilarious in deepest Nepal. And I'm sure you'll be as keen to hear their musings on life as much as I am. ARC presents Musings of the Moment with Lord Hercules and Lady Boudicca of Cheap. Good morning. Uh, I've been asked to share a few thoughts about our uh, many adventures and uh, some of the deep and meaningful lessons we've learned along the way. What are you doing? Uh, Like I just said, sharing some wise thoughts from our explorations. Oh, tell them about the time I wrestled a crocodile. When did you wrestle a crocodile? Whilst we were looking for the source of the Nile. That was quite an adventure. I don't remember that at all. I was probably at the bar. There was no bar. We were in deepest Africa. Uh, Well, I was on the emergency brandy then. Anyway, I really don't remember it. Uh, What was the outcome from this titanic battle? Oh, a lovely pair of boots. Um... I'm not sure that's the kind of lesson I'm supposed to be sharing with the good people of New Albion. You should always have good footwear. Granted. But all the same, I was thinking uh, something more about enduring against adversity. Oh, well, in that case, tell them about the time when I wrestled the polar bear. When on earth did you wrestle a polar bear? When we were the first landed gentry to reach the North Pole. We beat the Prussians to it. Well, I certainly do remember that expedition. Uh, There was a rather nice porter, if I recall correctly. Oh, Sven, yes, he was rather hunky. No, no, uh, no, I I meant the beer. Um, Anyway, what was the outcome of that epic struggle? A lovely pair of slippers, I suppose? Don't be ridiculous. Sorry. It was a pair of earmuffs. Is this helping at all? Well, it's certainly making me feel thirsty. Actually, it's making me feel hungry. Well, I'm sure you can wrestle a kipper or something for breakfast. <laughs> but, but no, this isn't really helping with um, amusing for the moment, is it? Uh, we need a good thought to get everyone in the right frame of mind to face the day. <laughs> oh, I see. How about don't forget to tie your shoelaces? Very practical, I'm sure, but perhaps something more profound? Don't walk on the cracks in the pavement? Maybe something that doesn't involve feet. 
We must have learnt something from our many years of conquering the wilderness. Being the first civilised people to tame the wild natives, and helping them understand who really runs their countries. Our epic and age-old domination of the titanic forces of Mother Nature. And wrestling wild beasts into submission. That too, I suppose. How about always use a handkerchief and be nice to your mother? I suppose that'll have to do. So, in conclusion, when you have tamed the wild beasts of the outer reaches and forged onwards in a way that only a true new Albioner can, struggled with your inner demons and come out the valiant conqueror of all you survey, make sure you use your handkerchief and always be nice to your mother. Oh, that reminds me, mother would like a new hat. You'd better wrestle a raccoon, then. Don't tempt me. Heaven forbid. Uh, well, I'm off to the pub. Uh, have a good day, New Albion. Tatty, bye. Well, that certainly got me thinking. Tune in next week to hear another musing from someone even more profound. Mabel, Ma Mabel, as a matter of interest, why do they keep saying good morning? Has no one told them this program goes out in the evening? Don't shrug your shoulders at me, young lady. This sort of thing is important. Makes us look a right shambles. Well, well, please try harder for next time. Now on the light programme, it's time for Slumber Time Stories. Part one of La Grande Course de la Caravane by Darren Callow. With giddy excitement, Ellen Hall skipped eagerly amongst the many exotic delights of the crowd that bustled vibrantly all around her. Keeping her heavy leather satchel tight by her side and clutching both battered carpet bag and dusty sun hat alike to prevent them being dislodged, she made her way quickly as, by her chronometer, the Grand Depart was barely five minutes hence. All about her, acrobats and dancers swayed, fire-eaters breathed sticky flames, and merchants offered all kinds of exotic-looking sustenance for the journey the fortunate few were about to make. It was a heady mix of smells, sounds and sights that made up this wonderful pageant for the greatest race on earth. Le Grand Course de la Caravane, or to give it its more prosaic English translation, the big caravan race. And the greatest sights of all were the marvellous steam, gas and diesel-powered sand haulers preparing to drag their motley caravans over the baking desert to the distant finish line. 
These mighty machines were a mishmash of repurposed steam locomotives, traction engines, and other doughty beasts of burden, some built entirely for this purpose alone. All had mighty rubber-rimmed brass sand wheels, or, in a few cases, caterpillar tracks, for dealing with the harsh desert landscape. The oldest of these haulers were quite a feast for the eyes, their iron bodies painted garishly bright and bedecked with garlands, streamers, and flags fluttering in the steam from their snorting boilers. Some even had the most incredible steam-powered orchestras mounted atop their engines. Pipes, horns, and percussion were all powered by excess gases and driven by punched cards that seemed to feature a quaint line in Gallic and Old Albion folk tunes that were probably big in the day. Dodging a particularly excitable-looking snake charmer, Ellen glanced down the lines of the engines as she hurried past, taking in the great caravans of miscellaneous carriages that stretched out behind each of them. The sight was truly astonishing, and it was very hard to take it all in as anticipation for the start seemed to notch up by the second with a great chorus of cries, songs, and blasts of exotic music from the steam orchestras. At the front of each of the caravans was the owner, or keenest salesperson, imploring all who looked vaguely half-interested into paying to join their particular train for the race. Ellen dodged past them all with a shimmy and a muttered apology, as her passage had been booked for months on one of the more venerable of the vehicles. In all her three years of exploring and adventuring gone, She'd always clung on to the dream of making the final leg of this journey in one of the great racing caravans. The escapade ran the full length of the Nubian desert, somewhere between two and ten days' travel, depending on the velocity of your vessel. Of course, some ran the race in an attempt to win, but most went for the thrill, the fiesta, and, frankly, just to say you'd done it. It was obvious that the great din was building to a crescendo, and Ellen was relieved to finally come across her chosen steed, the name of which translated with an astonishing amount of pompous brio to elevated holy transport of the desert god Arganta, the mighty saviour of all peoples and animals. It was, in fact, although you'd do well to recognise it now, an old steam train, that once served the Eastliest Indies Company, and now boasted one of the most crazy and intricate steam orchestras of all the haulers. Including, as it had been sold to her, a full pipe organ and bell-ringing marionettes. Identifying herself to the porter at her carriage, one of merely four double-decked wagons amongst the twenty or so pulled by this particular engine, she eagerly hauled herself up the worn iron steps to the top floor and sank with relief into a battered leather seat. A secondary reason for selecting this particular vehicle was for this very upper story to its passenger cars, which allowed wonderful views of the carnival and the race itself. Below her, 
bustling local bakers called out in many tongues the breads and cakes they had for sale, a last chance to stock up for the journey before they left civilization behind for a few days. Above circled a great circus of multicolored kites, airships and blimps buzzing around the starting line like moths to a particularly vigorous flame. Ellen felt her excitement boil up, almost fit to burst, as the assault on her senses showed not the least sign of diminishing. She glanced around the hot, dusty carriage, which had seen better days, but nothing quite so thrilling as this, taking in the one or two fellow travellers. A religious woman with a starched headdress wouldn't catch her eye, but a pretty young lady in a slightly tatty white dress and desert boots, clutching a small bag tightly to her chest, did offer a shy wave. Curious that she should be travelling alone, thought Ellen, who in truth was only a couple of years older than her. Nevertheless, she returned the wave, and as she brought her gaze back to the window, made a silent pledge to keep half an eye on her. Her musings were interrupted by the most ear-popping sound as the much-vaunted steam-powered orchestra that adorned the top of her locomotive gave off a startling blast of chaotic music. She had to bite her lip not to give out a squeal of sheer ecstasy as, sensing the start was indeed imminent, the locals began to gather up their wares and other paraphernalia and scurry with unseemly haste to get clear of the mighty engines before they lurched forward. Her own crazy vehicle was not one of the fancied runners and was well to the side of the starting line. But this offered her the most amazing views from her elevated seat of all the mighty engines now preparing for the off with great bellows of dirty steam. A shudder ran down the carriages as the engine cranked and belched into life, sending a cloud of hot, acrid smoke down over them, forcing Ellen to shield her eyes with an excitable giggle. Crude, amplified voices from an airship somewhere overhead broke through the din, reeling off what was almost certainly a countdown in some local dialect. Screams and cheers from all around added to the cacophony as the fervour levels reached near fever pitch. Then they all jumped in unison as a mighty cannon went off with a shattering boom that briefly drowned out everything else. And with a tremendous judder that rattled everything not firmly screwed down, which on this contraption was most things, they were underway. More blasts of music of various levels of tunefulness and cheers accompanied the start as great clouds of dust were kicked up in all directions, causing one and all to cover their faces with scarves and handkerchiefs. The noisiest, smelliest, dirtiest, and indeed most bonkers-est race on the planet had begun. It was several minutes before the dust cleared enough to be able to take in the spectacle around them more clearly. In that time, Ellen had befriended the young lady, whose name was Cleanta, and found out a little bit of her story. 
Her dark skin and flashing green eyes had quite captivated Ellen as she recounted in quite marvellous English her tale of travelling to visit relatives in the East and returning with a medium-status family heirloom to pay for her education, on which she seemed very keen, and putative marriage, on which she was less so. Like Ellen, the caravan race had been an affordable way of returning home in good time, although the risks were obviously scaring her a little. The girl ran a slender hand through her dark locks as she talked, and Ellen decided that the journey was going to be all the more enjoyable for her company. As the dust cleared further, they both moved excitedly to the windows to take in the great vista of the desert, now covered in clanking metal trains, moving with increasing speed towards the far horizon and, somewhere very distant, the finishing line. Streamers, kites and flags flew from every engine, and blasts from the improvised steam instruments created a quite glorious racket. Ellen and Clienta had to poke their heads out of the small windows to see the full extent of the immense vehicles, stretching out now as far as you could see in every direction. They grinned like giddy fools at each other and shared a hug for no reason at all other than to congratulate themselves on their good fortune to be a part of it. Hard as it was to drag oneself away from taking it all in, after an hour or so hunger got the better of them, and sandwiches were taken, washed down with lukewarm bottles of lemonade, purchased from a young native girl who had somehow managed to smuggle herself aboard. It was in this slight lull that Ellen began to realise that something was not quite right with the nearest caravan to the port side. Generally speaking, the great trains of the desert kept parallel lines, and the course was, for the most part, very straight indeed, since turning was not easily accomplished. However, the next machine across, a similarly crude contraption to their own, had been inching its way nearer to them. The speeds of the two great vehicles were roughly similar, and since braking was also not a trivial matter, it seemed to an increasingly concerned Ellen that a collision was becoming more and more likely. Glancing across, she could clearly see the equally alarmed-looking faces of the other trains paying punters, and for want of something better to do, waved meekly. Ahead of her, voices were raised in angry shouts, the horns of the locomotive now sounding an urgent warning rather than carnivalesque joy but all to no avail, as it soon became apparent that each set of engineers was urging the other to change course. And all the while, the mighty wheels of the two vehicles were converging at an alarming rate. Dust kicked up into the carriage as Ellen, her air cadet training kicking in, called a warning to her fellow passengers. Brace yourselves. The notice came none too soon, as with a mighty crash of wheels, screeching strained metal and a melancholy pop from the steam orchestra, the two vehicles collided side on. All were thrown to the floor, Clienta gripping her small leather bag all the tighter to her chest, as an almighty judder knocked the wind from their lungs. 
Despite the collision, the vehicles were still moving relentlessly. The holy transporter, however, was now heading well off course, having veered nearly 90 degrees to the north, dragging the great column of carriages and tenders at a seasick angle through the turn behind it. Each one sparking and grating against the other train as they peeled apart. What's happening? asked Cleander in a remarkably calm voice. To find out, Ellen pushed her head back out of the window and looked forward towards the locomotive. Hat discarded and goggles now clamped over her eyes, her short blonde hair smeared with dirt. It looks like we're still running, but the steering may be broken, relayed Ellen, taking in the increasingly frantic arm waving of the footplate engineers. I guess we're going this way for a bit. Not the best thing for those hoping to reach the western coast at any point in the next few days. But Ellen had read about such things happening in the race, and the vehicles were well equipped to cope with any eventualities, being pretty much self-sufficient for the duration. Despite now leaning to the right a small amount, the carriage was not jerking about so much that checks could not be carried out amongst the passengers to see if much was broken. The half a dozen or so of them in the small upper carriage seemed well enough, and cups of tea were ordered via a speaking tube, and this relieved the tension somewhat. Ellen used this time to check her own belongings were safe, and, just in case, moved her small brass revolver from her satchel and tucked it into her leather belt. She had found on her travels that it was always best to be prepared for the worst. After she was sure everyone was safe and sound, Ellen, accompanied by Cleanta, who volunteered very eagerly to join her, made their way down to the nearly deserted lower part of the carriage, then through tenders and tankers, with a mission to find someone with knowledge of the situation to identify if there was a plan to get them back on course. At the back of a rattling coal tender, they encountered a dust-smeared native stoker, with her dark skin, goggles and protective suit now pitch black with coal dust and grease. After one or two attempts, they found a language that both the stoker and Cleanta could converse in, and the stoker told them in no uncertain terms that they should not worry in the slightest, as the redoubtable and wise captain was an old and learned hand at this, and had many, many ways up her rather splendidly tailored sleeve to get them back on course in no time at all. In any case, she went on, the desert was immense in its vastness, and the likelihood of hitting something bigger than them was beyond remote. But if they did, the chances of a savage grinding death were nothing that they should concern themselves with in the slightest. Oh, and while she thought of it, desert wolves were not particularly likely to find their injured bodies and rip them limb from limb. No, no, that was unlikely in the extreme, and they should not bother themselves with that either, not even a smidgen. Not particularly mollified by any of this, but discouraged from going any further to get a more prosaic synopsis, 
they reluctantly began to make their way back on the shaking gangways. Between a workshop tender, now bustling with mechanics, that seemed to be arguing loudly and with much animation about what action was required to fix the ailing machine, and a large water tanker, was a ladder that led up onto the carriage roof. Clienta flashed her green eyes through her dark lashes at Ellen and gave a quick glance up and down the corridor for officials. I fancy we'll get a bit of view from up there, she whispered mischievously. Ellen had, in truth, been thinking the same thing and needed no further convincing. Too right. Let's go quickly before someone comes. And so they clambered up. Cleanta first, and Ellen, after a further sly glance around, quickly after her. As she poked her head up above the roof, she was surprised to find that there were three young urchins sitting up there, checking their takings and stock in small hampers they had been dragging around the train. They were alarmed at first, and looked ready to leg it off along the roof. But Ellen smiled and offered a cheery handshake and they soon realised they were not going to be evicted, and so proceeded to ignore them completely. The view from the top of the carriage was indeed a sight to behold. The great desert vistas stretched out as far as the eye could see to all points of the compass. In front of them, the holy whatnot, with its steam funnel and wacky instruments of its orchestra, dominated the view. Behind stretched out the ragtag assembly of the caravan, and beyond their cloud of dust they could just about make out the great plumes of steam and glinting kites from the great race itself, now streaming at a ninety-degree angle to them and getting more distant by the minute. Putting aside her mild alarm at this aspect, Ellen found herself otherwise quite captivated by the whole panorama, and she was only brought back to earth by Cleanta tugging urgently on the sleeve of her shirt. Um, any idea what those might be? She asked with only a hint of concern, pointing her lean arm towards several plumes of dust pretty much dead ahead. Accompanying these was an ominous dark shape in the air that was, more than likely, an airship of some kind, although it was still hard to tell through the steam from the great coal-fired engine ahead. Nothing good, I'll wager, offered Ellen, first checking her pistol was still safe, and then pulling out an extending brass traveloscope from her satchel. Squinting through this, she tried to make out the shapes through the dust clouds and heat haze ahead. The dark blob was indeed an airship, and through the telescope she could make out it had a fish-like shape, with great canvas fins and a mean-looking shark's teeth and eyes painted on the front. The great metal cabin below was an armoured military type, and seemed to be bristling with rockets, harpoons and cannon pointing in all directions. Ellen tried to swallow but her throat was dry and the dust only made it sting. Her heart was thumping rapidly now beneath her grimy shirt. Looking lower, she could now make out the shapes on the desert floor, kicking up great plumes of gritty sand behind them. 
War horses! she exclaimed, not realizing she was speaking aloud. Right enough, they were indeed great steam powered iron war horses. She knew them well enough from her time in the cadets. They had once been state of the art military hardware, but they had long been superseded by superior technology. Shifting her gaze back, she realized that the airship was a similar vintage to the horses. An armored air monitor that was cutting edge maybe half a century before. She could begin to make out people in the cabin and on horseback, dark skinned natives with war paint smeared crudely on their faces. Pirates! She exhaled, and lowering the telescope, she realized the urchins were long gone, and she and the dusky girl were the only ones left on the roof. We should warn the others! But before she could do anything, a mighty flash of light and flame came from the wicked-looking airship, followed by a booming bark of thunder. Seconds later, a rocket hit the holy witch, you may call it, and in a blinding flash of light and sparks, the front wheels were blown off, and the whole edifice buried its head into the unforgiving sand. This, in turn, caused a stomach-churning judder to run down the spine of the caravan as carriages and tenders alike shunted into each other like toppling dominoes, throwing Ellen and Cleanta off the roof and down with a thump onto the desert floor. Dazed and confused, they barely had enough time to dust themselves off before the first of the great iron horses loomed threateningly over them. Standing nearly 15 feet tall, the mighty machine was composed of a steam engine with a round black boiler for a belly. A funnel, coughing out acrid clouds of black smoke, rose like an iron tail from the rear, and the crude animal-shaped head with an ornate cannon protruding from the snout arched down towards them. The mechanoid had four rusty articulated metal legs at the front and another set in mirror configuration at the rear. In some ways, more like a giant armored crab than the cobs that gave the machine its name. Atop this mechanical marvel were four or five Berbers in a mixture of local desert clothes and, somewhat oddly, remains of old Albion military uniforms. Their faces were painted with stripes and angled lines, which matched the menacing decorations of their horse and airship that now drifted overhead, blocking the sunlight. Ellen grabbed frantically for her pistol, but found to her horror that she had lost it in the fall. She still had her satchel, though, and moved with alacrity to bury it beneath the nearest half-covered giant wheel before the pirates could get to her. With whoops and bloodthirsty cries, they had leapt from the iron machines and moved quickly with glistening cutlasses and mean-looking flintlocks to the passenger sections, looking to relieve the travellers of anything of value. Fortunately, despite their array of ancient but still very deadly weaponry and paramilitary demeanour, no one was harmed and no hostages were taken. 
Indeed, the only dicey moment came when a particularly savage-looking pirate lunged to take Cleanta's small leather pouch. Her eyes had widened and she had tightened her muscles into a fighting stance before Ellen had moved to restrain her as a vibrating sabre was shaken with great menace in her general direction. You can't win this one, brave girl, whispered Ellen, holding her head close to Cleanta's dark locks. Let's live and fight another day. With extreme reluctance, Cleanta released her white knuckled grip and her bag was taken to join the other booty. Then, having scared everyone half to death, and rallied by the blood-curdling cry of the pirate queen, the pirates remounted their iron steeds and began to retreat. As the mechanoids began to lumber away from them, and the airship leaned lazily overhead, beginning its U-turn, Ellen was shocked to see Cleanta gather up her bustling skirts and begin to stride after them with great purpose. Where are you going? she hissed as she scurried to retrieve her precious satchel, dusting the sand off it, and then scampered after her. I cannot lose what's in that bag, she began to mutter darkly over her shoulder not even turning to face the panting adventurer as she finally caught up with her. What's so important about a family heirloom that you would risk your life? She asked, struggling to keep up in the soft sand. There is more to it than that. I've sworn to bring the contents of that bag home at all costs. Do not try and stop me. She had barely broken stride in this time but the iron horses were rapidly pulling away, and the slower, lumbering airship had completed its turn and was once again blocking the harsh desert sun as it throbbed ominously overhead. So determined was she that Ellen thought better of trying to dissuade her. Instead, her thoughts turned to more cunning ideas. Oh, we'll die out here on foot. I have a better idea. And with that, she pulled from her satchel a somewhat battered but still rather nifty-looking handgun with a brass harpoon loaded in the barrel, which she proceeded to aim at a section of crudely repaired wooden planking towards the back of the airship gondola. Here goes nothing, she muttered, and with that she aimed and fired. is Ellen's cunning plan? Will they manage to recover Cleanta's heirloom? And will the elevated holy transport of the desert god Arganta, the mighty saviour of all peoples and animals, ever run again? Tune in next week to find out the answers as we bring you another instalment of Slumbertime Stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orbion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All characters and stories are copyright to and performed by Darren Callow. With the exception of Lord Hercules of Cheam, performed by Ben Henderson, and Lady Boudicca of Cheam, played by Tixia Henderson. All music by Charlotte Savigar. 
Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production, Albion Radiophonic Corporation.